Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. My guest on this special bonus episode of In Her Room is Starhawk. Known as one of the foremothers of the modern goddess and pagan communities, Starhawk has been teaching, writing, and living as an activist for over 40 years. Author of The Spiral Dance and more than a dozen other books, she shares her knowledge of a different way of living, one that combines magic and activism, permaculture and social justice, and the belief that we each have the power to change the world. A co-founder of the Reclaiming Tradition, Starhawk brings history, truth, and beauty to all her endeavors. Starhawk, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Well, it's wonderful. It's a pleasure to be on. I'm so thrilled to talk about your new book and the project that you're working on around that. It's called City of Refuge, and it's a sequel to your 1993 novel, The Fifth Sacred Thing. But I want to talk about the book and so much more. So let's dive right in by starting off. What is writing to you? I was thinking about that question today and thinking writing is sort of like a cross between uh, compulsive gambling addiction and uh, a hallucinatory psychosis that's barely kept under control. (laughs) You know, I can relate to that. (laughs) You know, it's, uh, I'm not sure it's really an occupation for a mature adult to spend, especially writing fiction. Writing nonfiction is different. Nonfiction is just work. You take an idea, you develop it, you uh, research it, you flesh it out, you back it up. It's like writing a high school term paper only 20 or 30 times. But fiction is really like entering into another world and um, being lost for sort of like being in a trance for months, sometimes years at a time. And your characters kind of come alive. They become real to you. Uh, sometimes they become as real as your actual friends and family and lovers. Sometimes they become more real. And um, when you end, it's kind of like a postpartum depression. Suddenly all these people who were alive and who you were spending so much time with are gone. Uh, It's kind of a strange and awful feeling. So (laughs) that's kind of what writing is. It's a succession of unpleasant feelings. (laughs) If you're lucky, reward you with um, a wonderful sense at the end of having communicated something to people having influenced people, and maybe even a tiny amount of money. You never know. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned writing both fiction and nonfiction. You've written over a dozen books in the last 40 years. You're probably most well-known for The Spiral Dance, uh, which is considered by many to be sort of a handbook or a guide for modern paganism. And I'd love to know the the importance for you in writing about magic, particularly 
magic and activism, which comes out of your work with the reclaiming tradition? Yeah, for me, magic is really about consciousness. Uh, the definition I've always liked for it is Dion Fortune's definition that magic is the art of changing consciousness at will. And I've also felt that that is a good definition for real political activism, real political change, that it's not just about shifting who holds power. It's really about shifting our conceptions of power and our understandings of how the world should work in a very deep way. So to me, they go together. And that's why I write about them together, practice them together. Uh, it's really about how do we envision the world that we want to live in and then how do we create it and how do we contest the forces that are standing in the way of being able to bring it about. Mm, absolutely. And you've written on a lot of different aspects of both magic and activism. You've written about your work with the reclaiming tradition. You've written about an organization and a program that you co-created called the Earth Activist Training, which is about bringing together activism and social justice along with the principles of permaculture and sustainable living. You've also written about the work that you did in Gaza with the International Solidarity Movement and other organizations like that. I'm curious the impact that all of these different things and these different works that you've done in the world have had on your writing life? Well, I think if you are a writer, then everything you do kind of in, influences your writing and helps to enrich it and helps to uh, give it more depth and broaden it. You know, certainly for me, um, you know, everything I've done from activism to permaculture to ecological design ends up kind of somehow or other getting into the books that I write if I'm either writing directly about it or if it's um, influencing a piece of fiction. Um, you know, having been in Gaza and the West Bank uh, with a group that was supporting nonviolent resistance there you know, for me was a tremendous experience on so many levels. Um, and as a writer, you know, as a writer who tackles things like movements and politics and revolutions and huge social changes in my books and my fiction, uh, it gave me a much more visceral understanding of what it actually takes, you know, to be in those situations. What is it really feel like when you're in a situation where you know your life could be in danger? Uh, what does it really feel like when you're working with people who are willing to put themselves on the line? Um, how do people actually behave in those situations? They often don't behave the way you might think they would if you haven't mm. been there. In fact, they don't behave all that differently from the way people behave when they're not putting their lives on the line. <laughs> um, so I'm a great believer that writers actually need to get out there and do some real living as well as writing. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
comes through in your work, both writing about the things that you experience firsthand and the the people that you meet, there's definitely a sense that you write what you know. And I'm wondering how you feel about that and if that's something you do consciously or if you simply live as a writer, therefore everything is part of what you write. Well, I think as a writer, on the one hand, you people always say, write what you know. Um, but I think as a writer, it's also your job to develop uh, a powerful imagination and to be able to write what you don't know. Uh, for me, if I'm writing a novel or a piece of fiction, it always starts with something I don't know. It starts with a question. Mm. Um, you know, the fifth sacred thing was the question really was how does a, a peaceful society defend itself against violence without losing its core values, without becoming what it's fighting against? And writing City of Refuge, the question I was really wrestling with is how do we create a beautiful new world when people are so deeply damaged by the old? Mm. And then that question, I think if you really hold a question, it leads you into a lot of interesting pathways and journeys with it uh, that definitely do draw on all the things that you do know. But I think everybody knows something about how it is to be a human being who loves and hates and fears and loses people to death or to other kinds of losses. I mean, we all have life experience we can draw on. Uh, and I think it's most important to draw on that kind of deep human knowing then you can go research, you know, how sea urchins mate or, you know, how to sail a boat or whatever else it is. Mm -hmm. um, but it's that personal knowing, you know, that writing requires you actually examine and face and become familiar with your own, own internal processes. Mm -hmm. And you talk about the question that inspired the fifth sacred thing. I want to talk about City of Refuge, which is the sequel to the fifth sacred thing. And really, why write the book now? Why, after 20 years, come back to this story and these characters and say, what's the next step? Well, really, it's a bad idea. <laughs> to wait 20 years to write a sequel. I don't recommend it to people. But it was it kind of came because we have been working on bringing the fifth sacred thing to the screen for quite some time now. And so I had been writing a screenplay and working on a pilot. And it was like doing all that work. The characters kind of came alive again and the world became very present to me. And it started to sort of clamor to, um, to have a sequel, to take it the next step, to figure out what happens next. Mm. 
I'd love it if you might read some of City of Refuge for us. All right, I'm going to read just a few excerpts. Bird dreamed of a fortress, impregnable, formed of cold blocks of gray stone. It towered above him, a bugle blew. The gates opened and legions of soldiers poured out. Masked and helmeted, armed and shielded, they marched in lockstep, left, right, left, an invincible force. But how do we fight this, Bird asked. How do we bring it down? He wasn't sure who or what he was asking, but he heard a voice, low and toneless. The fortress falls when the ground beneath it shifts. A rumble. The earth shivered and trembled under his feet. He stepped closer to the fortress walls. A shaft of light came down out of the lowering clouds and played over the surface of the stones. It formed a rippling pattern, like the broken webs of light playing through water. The light, he realized suddenly, was shining through the stones. The walls that looked so solid were riddled with cracks. They were brittle and ready to fall. And now, up through the cracks, vines snaked, and out of the stones, herbs and grasses sprouted. The walls began to crumble, but the roots and the twining stems held the structure together as mortar turned to dust. Trees took root in the rubble and arched overhead, their branches heavy with fruit. Where the fortress had stood, now was a leafy hall, open with room for the multitudes. Hmm. And here's another one. Uh, this one centers around Cress, who was more of a minor character in the fifth sacred thing, but um, becomes more of a major character in City of Refuge. And uh, Cress had always been very angry in the first book. He's angry in the second book. He and River take one arm of the army down to the Central Valley to liberate it. And then this is one of the things that happens when, uh, when they're almost to the Southlands. Cress climbed up one of the foothills, following a sandy trail over the rocks, until he could look back over the whole flat expanse to the north, all the land they fought for and liberated. In the golden glow of the low sun, the valley looked enchanted, a place full of promise where wonderful things could happen. But he knew better. This was the dry, cracked land he was born in. Whole sections had collapsed into sinkholes and the quakes and the emptying out of the water table below. Vast stretches had become barren badlands, and even the flat and featureless plain that still supported agriculture was salted and, di and dying from the poisons with which the stewards drenched their fields. Yet he remembered his father telling stories of the days when the air was clear and you could see the high Sierras rising up in the east. He remembered the play of the wind in the fields, how they would ripple like the waves of the sea, tossing the light back and forth like foam. He was a man of water guild. He could feel the waters retreated now deep below the earth, crying out to be replenished. His vision rippled and he saw how the land could be gently carved with swales and berms to capture every scarce drop of rain, to guard and cherish every dribble and fuse every trickle back into the earth. Then, once again, springs would well up 
and vernal pools harbored delicate ephemeral wildflowers. Wetlands would form, with cranes and herons coming to feed and wild geese resting on their long migrations. Shelter belts of fruit trees and nut trees would enclose green fields, and on the hillsides, meadows would clothe themselves each spring in brilliant tapestries of wildflowers, pink and orange and blue. Three farmers would till rich soil, restored to health, dark and alive and fertile, and their children would swim in blue jewels of lakes and feast on peaches and almonds, free and unafraid. Hmm. Thank you. You're currently about halfway through a Kickstarter campaign to fund the publication of City of Refuge. I'm curious why you decided to go with a Kickstarter campaign perhaps instead of a more traditional publishing round? Well, I would have gone with Bantam, who published The Fifth Sacred Thing and Walking to Mercury, but they didn't want to go with me. So they didn't think there was an audience for a sequel to a book 20 years old. Uh, you know, they have been bought and sold and merged and corporatized so many times in the last 20 years that they're really not even the same uh, entity they were when they published Fifth Sacred Thing. Mm -hmm. And there's nobody there who has any connection whatsoever with the book. And they are not at all set up to focus on their backlist. So when they turned it down, you know, I could have looked for another publisher, um, but I thought it was unlikely I'd get another major publisher if Bantam didn't want to do it. For one thing, there really aren't that many anymore. Like so many other things, there's now three or four gigantic conglomerates that control the bulk of the publishing world. And I didn't want to spend another you know, year or two years sending it out and waiting months and months months to hear back. I just wanted to get it out into the hands of readers. And, you know, there's lots of small publishers. I could have gone with a small publisher. But honestly, there's not much a small publisher can do for you um, that you can't do for yourself these days. You still have to do all the promotion yourself. Uh, you still have to do you know, all the work of reaching your audience, you know, they would do the production, which would be nice and put up the money to do that. But I thought this would be a good time to really experiment with uh, going it as a self-publisher and seeing what happens. And I'm excited about it. Absolutely. I, so we're recording this, um, just a, about a week into the Kickstarter campaign and it is over half funded which I think is a great example of how there is a community for this book and there is an audience for this book, which is maybe something that Bantam was a little worried about. But I think there's a new generation of readers coming to this work and saying, you know, we're not happy with how things are going. We need to see other ways of making a future together. And I can say that because mm -hmm. I'm sort of part of that generation. I I first read The Fifth Sacred Thing uh, when I was 15, about 15 years ago. And 
have carried around that first copy with me. It is beat up and worn out and has been rebound a couple of times. Um, but I think the draw of the book for me was that it it gave me hope that there was a different way of having a society that wasn't based in corporate theocratic greed and demand, <laughs> I guess. Um, you mentioned a little bit ago that you're working on the fifth, bringing the fifth sacred thing to the screen. And something that readers and fans of your work may not know is that you actually have a background in film and have worked on several film projects, including the Maria Gambudas documentary, Signs Out of Time, and the women's spirituality series back in the 80s. And I'm curious how your background in film has influenced both the work that you do in the world, as well as the way that you write. Yeah, well, I actually was a film major in graduate school at UCLA back in the 70s. And that was originally what I wanted to do. Uh, I ended up discovering that I enjoyed writing and loved writing and um, don't love keeping track of things and organizing things, which is a lot of what a director does and even more what a producer does. Uh, so writing sort of was the direction I ended up going in. Um, but I've always been very, very drawn to film and the visual arts. I'm a very visual person. Uh, and um, in the 80s, I was approached by Donna Reed Cooper, who was working with the National Film Board. Um, at that time, there was a whole women's division called Studio D that was there specifically to make films about women and to uh, help women develop skills and positions of leadership uh, in filmmaking. And uh, so we worked together on this trilogy, Goddess Remembered, Burning Times, and Full Circle. Uh, writing, and I did some of the commentary writing, and then we enjoyed working together so much that after that project was done, we formed our own film company uh, called Belili Productions, and we did a documentary on the archaeologist Maria Gimbutas uh, called Signs Out of Time. She was the archaeologist who did some of the major work on the old goddess cultures of old Europe. And we did another one on permaculture called Permaculture, the Growing Edge. And I've learned a tremendous amount from working with Donna. Um, you know, there's a lot in filmmaking, whether it's a documentary or, you know, a more fictional feature, that's really about how do you tell a story visually and how do you tell a story through action rather than just through dialogue or people's thoughts or description. And I think that's um, very helpful skills to have as a writer. Mm, absolutely. And I think also that work, the work that you did with Donna Reed Cooper really brought to a wider audience a lot of the history 
and the story behind, I think, what became really pop culture new agey in the 90s. Um, things that came out of ancient practices and the work and the research that was being done, but was not really understood for its historical value. And I know I remember being a women's studies student in college in the early 2000s and watching Burning Times in a women's studies class and experiencing with a group of, you know, 18 to 30 year olds, these women learning about the history for the first time and the profound impact that the visual narrative had on these students who most likely would not have otherwise been exposed to this information. Yeah. And, you know, even though novel writing will always be my first love, I think we're in an age now where people don't read as much, where we're getting so much of our information visually uh, that filmmaking and that form of storytelling is more important than ever. I would absolutely agree. I think that was one of the things that um, this sort of lack of print culture or the shifting print culture is really one of the things that inspired me to create this show and to have a different way of conveying these conversations that was more accessible than maybe carrying a book might be. Yeah. I'm curious the best advice you've ever received. Well, I'm not sure about me, but as a writer, I would say the best advice I've ever received and the advice I always give people is if you want to be a writer, schedule time to write. Treat it like a regular job. Um, protect that time because there will always be something else more pressing to do or more fun to do or more enticing to do than write. And then sit there and write. And don't wait to be inspired because inspiration is rare. <clears throat> just sit there, even if you just stare at the screen. And if you do that and develop that discipline, the inspiration will come. Mm -hmm. I think often we get caught up in this, this, oh, I, I can't, I can't because... I don't have the muse or I don't know what to write about. And it's a, a good reminder that when we show up, so do the words and so do the things that we're interested in writing about. Actually, I'll tell you the best advice I've ever received. Uh, when I started graduate school at film in UCLA, one of the, uh, the head of the department, I don't even remember his name, like, talk to us and talk to us about writing. And at one point he said, and don't worry about whether or not you have talent. He said, lack of talent never kept anyone from writing. <laughs> so I pass that on. I think that's great advice. Uh -huh. I'm going to tuck that one in my back pocket too. Yeah. We've talked a lot about um, the work that you do, particularly your activism and the social justice work that you've done in tandem with your writing. And one of the concepts that we've 
touched on several times is permaculture. And I'd love it if you might share what permaculture is for you, maybe your personal definition of permaculture, and how that you came to that work. Yeah, um, permaculture for me is kind of the practical application of the idea that the earth is sacred. It's a system of ecological design that has a set of ethics and principles for looking at any kind of a system, really, and saying, uh, how does nature do it? And if we work in the same way nature works, can we create systems that can meet our human needs and at the same time actually regenerate the environment around us? And I got involved in it because after decades of being involved in earth-based spirituality, um, when I heard, heard about permaculture, you know, I felt like, wow, now this is the how-to part. Mm-hmm. We can sing about healing the earth, but now I can go and learn how to actually take a piece of damaged ground and bring it alive again. And that was very, very exciting. I've always loved nature. I've always loved gardening and being out in nature. And um, I really love the whole body of knowledge around how the land and the plants and the animals and the humans all interrelate and can all support each other. I love that. I love that it's the how-to, the the practical application. Uh, And I think a lot of the principles of permaculture come through in your writing, not even just your writing about permaculture and the work that you do with the Earth Activist trainings, but also in your fiction and in the way that the society in the world of the Fifth Sacred Thing and City of Refuge exists, the way that they work and choose to live with the land. Yes, it's there in the characters. It's there in uh, the vision of San Francisco and the vision of the city. Um, it was very much an influence in the fifth sacred thing, even though I didn't know as much about it then as I do now. And, um, you know, it's something I feel is very hopeful in this time of climate change and massive environmental meltdown. You know, permaculture really teaches us a lot of what the solutions are, and what we can do to bring the world back into balance. And there are things that we can do. You know, we actually can create a beautiful world like the one I envision in The Fifth Sacred Thing. Mm, Absolutely. I'd love to give you a moment to share a piece of your wisdom with folks who are listening, uh, many of whom may be hearing your words and learning about your work for the first time. Yeah, I mean, what I always like to say to people is figure out what is sacred to you in life, what you most deeply care about, um, what you don't want to see compromised or destroyed, um, what means more to you than your comfort and your convenience, and figure out how you can put your best life energies behind that. 
and service. And you will have a really fulfilling and interesting life. Uh, it's pretty much as simple as that. Hmm. The other piece of advice I'd give to people who want to be writers is to understand, you know, writing, um, it's a hard discipline. It involves being able to face a lot of rejection, no matter how successful you are. Uh, there always comes those moments where you're not. And, you know, if you really do seriously want to be a writer, you have to learn to separate your worth and your value as a human being from whether your work is accepted or rejected or successful or not successful because otherwise it'll just drive you crazy and for me I guess also that's part of why I think it's really helpful to have some kind of spiritual base you know well for me that's the goddess tradition and paganism and connection to nature and community for other people it might be more a traditional religion or, you know, a sense of connection with God. For some people, it might be something like Buddhist meditation or something else, but something that grounds you back and something, again, that keeps you connected to those deep forces of creativity and compassion in the universe. Uh, and again, separate from any question about whether at the moment you're succeeding or failing or people like you or don't like you, uh, having that ground to go back to is something that can really help steady you and keep you on course. Hmm. Absolutely. Starhawk, it has been so great having you on the show today. I am just so thrilled to be able to share your words and your wisdom with so many people and to talk about City of Refuge and the Kickstarter campaign that you're running for it. If folks want to learn more about you, your books, and all of your work, they can find you online at starhawk.org. That's right. And if people are interested in Earth Activist trainings, which are permaculture design courses with a grounding in spirit and a focus on organizing and activism, uh, you can find that at earthactivisttraining.org. Uh, or there's links from my website from starhawk.org. Fabulous. Thank you so much for being on the show today. You are listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in-her-room.com, You'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. Interested in the way place affects our lives as writers? Learn more and sign up for my latest course, Topography of Self, at sarahblackthorne.com. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together.